السلام عليكم ورحمة الله وبركاته بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم الحمد لله نحمده ونستعينه ونستغفره ونؤمن به ونتوكل عليه ونعوذ بالله من شرور أنفسنا ومن سيئات أعمالنا من يهده الله فلا مضل له ومن يضلله فلا هادي له ونشهد أن لا إله إلا الله وحده لا شريك له ونشهد أن محمدا عبده ورسوله صلى الله تعالى عليه وعلى آله وصحبه وبارك وسلم تسليما كثيرا كثيرا أما بعد فعوذ بالله من الشيطان الرجيم بسم الله الرحمن الرحيم إن الله وملائكته يصلون على النبي يا أيها الذين آمنوا صلوا عليه وسلموا تسليما اللهم صل على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما صليت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد اللهم بارك على محمد وعلى آل محمد كما باركت على إبراهيم وعلى آل إبراهيم إنك حميد مجيد Respected listeners As has been announced, the title of today's talk is The Sacrifice of the Scholars for Knowledge. Allah and His Messenger, sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, have both praised knowledge and the people of knowledge in the Qur'an and in the Hadith. And only recently, I gave a speech about the famous hadith of Abu Darda radiyallahu As a commentary, I explained the virtues of knowledge and the people of knowledge based on that hadith. It's a very famous hadith. And the one thing that the hadith speaks about at the very beginning is going out in search of knowledge, travelling in search of knowledge. And the person to whom Abu Darda radiallahu related this hadith, he himself had travelled all the way from Medina to Dimashq, from Medina to Damascus, for only one purpose, to hear a hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam from the companion Abu Darda radiallahu who then went on to give him the glad tidings that he had heard Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam say. That man kharaja fi talab al-ilm. Sorry. That whoever embarks on a path of seeking knowledge, man salaka tariqan, Whoever embarks and treads a path in search of knowledge, Allah will lead him along a path all the way to Jannah. And you've heard the rest of the hadith. So Allah and His Messenger وسلم, both praised knowledge and the people of knowledge in the Quran and in the hadith. However, and knowledge has always fascinated Muslims. The eagerness and zeal 
to learn about the words of Allah and the words of his noble messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam this zeal and this passion has always touched Muslims however Allah has ways and methods in his creation Allah has laws and patterns and one of his laws one of his patterns in his creation is that the knowledge of Allah and his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam can only truly be gained in a beneficial manner if it's done with sacrifice and with a great effort. That has been the consistent pattern with ilm and ulama, with knowledge and the people of knowledge and scholars throughout history. In fact, we learn about this all the way from the time of the Prophet Adam In a hadith related by Imam Bukhari, Imam Muslim and others as part of a longer hadith. Prophet relates that when Allah created the Prophet Adam Allah told him, go to the angels and say salam to them, assalamu alaykum. And whatever they greet you with in return, that will be your greeting and the greeting of your progeny and children. So the Prophet Adam salam went to the angels and said, Assalamu alaykum, and they replied by saying, Wa alaykum assalam wa rahmatullah. So the essence of the story is that even to learn salam, which Allah could have taught the Prophet Adam salam directly, Allah told him, no, even in order to learn wa alaykum salam wa rahmatullahi wa barakatuh, go to the angels. He went and he learned from the angels. And this was the case with all of the Anbiya And there is no better example than the story of the Prophet Musa Today is Friday as part of the prescribed acts of virtue on Jum'ah. Many of us will have read Surah Al-Kahf. And one of the longest and most prominent stories of Surah Al-Kahf, it contains a number of stories. One of the most prominent and longest stories of Surah Al-Kahf is that of the Prophet Musa alayhi salam and his young companion. And how they travelled on, on a very strange journey, witnessing miracles and experiencing some very strange things. And the basis of that story is that the Prophet Musa alayhi salam was asked, that, is there anyone more knowledgeable than you? And he replied in the negative. And from his perspective, it was correct to do so, for he was the Prophet of Allah. And the Messenger of Allah amongst his people is always the most knowledgeable. And in one narration, he was asked, who is the most knowledgeable? And he replied, I. But Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala wished to show him 
since what he said wasn't incorrect. But as a messenger of Allah and as a prophet of Allah, it behoved him more, it befitted him more to ascribe knowledge not to himself but to Allah Azza wa Jal. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala revealed to him that no, O Musa, there is someone even more knowledgeable than you. There is someone who has knowledge that we have not given you. The Prophet Musa alayhi salam immediately asked Allah, O oh Allah, is there a path to this person? So Allah azza wa jal told him, yes, you can meet him, but you will be done in this manner. So the Prophet Musa alayhi salam embarked on that journey, which is related in Surah Al-Kahf. It was a very strange journey with many strange occurrences. But the point of reference for us in this story, in the context of today's talk, is simply that the Prophet Musa alayhi salam wanted to learn from him. Despite his own knowledge and his position, he wanted to learn from this servant of Allah who was Khidr alayhi salam. And he embarked on this long journey, strange things happened, they carried on, missed the point of meeting, retraced their steps, went back, and there they found Khidr alayhi salam leaning against a boulder. He said to him, Assalamu alaykum. His reply was, Wa'anna bi'ardika salam. Where is there peace in your land? He said, peace be on you. His reply was, where is there peace in your land? And then, a very strange conversation took place. Strange because this was the Prophet Musa alayhi salam. And this was someone who was totally unknown to them. He asked him very humbly, may I follow you? May I follow you on the understanding that you will teach me of that guidance which you have been given. His reply was that you will never be able to remain patient with me. And how can you remain patient over something which you cannot understand? So Musa alayhi salam said to him, قَالَ سَتَجِدُنِي إِنْشَاءَ اللَّهُ صَابِرًا وَلَا أَعْصِي لَكَ أَمْرًا That inshaAllah you will find me patient, and I will not disobey any command of you. قَالَ فَإِنِ اتَّبَعْتَنِي He then said, well, if you do follow me, فَلَا تَسْأَلْنِي عَنْ شَيْءٍ حَتَّى أُحْدَثَ لَكَ مِنْهُ ذِكْرًا Then do not ask me about anything until I speak to you of it first. He agreed. They travelled. Something happened. The Prophet Musa salam spoke up. He was warned. Something else happened. The Prophet Musa salam spoke up again. He was warned for the second and last time and told that if you do speak up again, if you do ask anything again, that will be a parting of our ways. Third time, Musa alayhi salam couldn't contain himself. He spoke again, and then it was declared by Khidr alayhi salam that now we must part. Even the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam says in a hadith related by most authors that how we wish that Musa alayhi salam would have remained a bit more patient, we would have learnt, he would have been able to reveal to us much more of the affair of Khidr. Now, that's just a summary of the story. The interesting thing is, 
That if you try to understand the character of the Prophet Musa alayhi salam, he was a chosen servant and messenger of Allah, someone who was very outspoken. He would speak to Allah directly. He would speak to the other Anbiya alayhi salam in a very forthright manner, even to the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, even to Allah azza wa jal, arini anzur ilayka wallah, show me yourself, I wish to see you. He made that request to Allah. Prophet Musa alayhi salam, when he met Adam alayhi salam, he said, you, you are the one who drove us from Jannah. And then, even with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam in Mi'raj, he told him, what has Allah given you? He said, Salah, how many times? Fifty. We all know the story. He said, go back. I have tested my people. Your ummah will not be able to fulfill the duty of 50 salawah per day. The Prophet ﷺ went back, had it reduced to 45, came back. He asked him again, he said, go back. 45, 40, 35, 30, and so on, all the way till 5 salawah. Sayyidina Musa ﷺ kept on stopping the Prophet ﷺ and sending him back. And even after 5, he said that this is too much. The, the point is, he was very forthright, very outspoken. And his character and temperament were such. In fact, when he returned from the mountain and saw that his people had deviated, he grabbed his own brother, physically. And it's mentioned in the Qur'an, لا تأخذ بلحيتي ولا برأسي That, oh my brother, يا ابن أمي لا تأخذ بلحيتي ولا برأسي Oh, my, oh son of my mother, do not grab me by my beard and by my head. His anger was such, he he took the... Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam, his temperament was such that he was very outspoken, forthright. And he would get angry and he would let his displeasure be known. And yet, despite being of that temperament, he humbled himself and he silenced himself. And he changed his whole approach in order to learn from Khidr And he traveled with him. He accepted all the conditions. And these were stringent conditions. No, you can't come with me. No, you can't learn from me. Assalamu alaikum. Assalam. Where is there salam and peace in your land? You can't travel with me. You can't learn from me. You cannot be patient. He made promise after promise to him. Fine, if you follow me, you cannot ask me anything. And he didn't say, I wish to accompany you. He, he said, I wish to follow you. And ittiba' means that Khidr alayhi salam became the leader and Musa, Sayyidina Musa alayhi salam became the follower. Even the messenger of Allah, the Prophet Musa alayhi salam, a person of that caliber, who communicated directly with Allah Azza wa Jal. He humbled himself and he embarked on a long, arduous, trying journey in order to learn, in order to gain ilm. And so on. All the way till the time of the Prophet Sallallahu Alaihi Wasallam and even the noble Sahaba Radiallahu Anhum. We all wish to gain knowledge. And in fact, we must. In a hadith, Prophet says, The search for knowledge is an obligation upon every Muslim.
So it's an obligation on us. We must know about our religion. And not just the basics. We all have a duty to learn. In fact, anyone who has a love of Allah and the love of his messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in their heart would be driven to search for knowledge. For this is part of that love. Someone loves Allah, he loves Allah's speech. He loves Allah's kalam, Allah's Qur'an. A person who loves the Prophet will love his words, his sunnah, his hadith, his teachings, his practice. And they will go, out, they will go to great lengths to gain this knowledge. So seeking knowledge should be the desire of every Muslim. In fact, the Prophet says it's an obligation. However, there are etiquettes, there are rules... There are conditions and prerequisites for gaining true beneficial knowledge. And one of those conditions, one of those prerequisites is that we must make sacrifices. This whole deen is established on sacrifice. Knowledge is established on sacrifice. We would not be seated here today sharing the words of Allah and the words of his noble messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam without the sacrifice of the scholars our teachers our elders they would have never learned without the sacrifice of their elders their teachers and so on consecutively all the way to the t- till the time of the sahaba radiyallahu anhum and even the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, they didn't just gain knowledge overnight. They worked hard. They starved for the sake of knowledge. Sayyidina Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu, the most prolific narrator of hadith, he, he narrates. Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiyallahu anha, the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. She was his noble wife, his youngest wife. And over the many years she stayed with him, she learned, heard, observed, witnessed so much. And she conveyed so much. Her ahadith in total, despite being a family member, a wife, in total, she relates just over 2,000 hadith, separate hadith. Whereas Abu Hurairah radiallahu he did not embrace Islam till the seventh year of Hijrah. And the total amount of time that he was actually a Muslim during the time of the Prophet sallallahu life was just under four years. And yet in under four years, he had collected, memorized, and then later managed to convey approximately 5,300 hadith. Twice as much as Umm al-Mu'mineen Aisha radiallahu anha. Over twice as much, two and a half times. And just as people may express surprise now, people express surprise then. Not the Sahaba radiallahu anhum, but those who came after the Sahaba. And Imam Bukhari relates this hadith, and so do others. The Sayyidina Abu Hurairah himself said that people say, 
لقد أكثر أبو هريرة The Abu Huraira has gone to the extreme, i.e. in relating hadith. And what he was trying to say, and the accusation was, that why is it that some of the other companions who are older, more senior in position, and who spent, who are older even in religion, so they had become Muslim much earlier, how, why is it that they relate such few hadith? And yet Abu Huraira radiyallahu an he relates so many ahadith so sayyidina abu hurairah radiyallahu an explains he says speaking of himself that whilst he says our brothers from amongst the muhajirun they were traders so they would be in the marketplace and our brothers from amongst the ansar the indigenous muslims of medina they were farmers and people of fields and tilth. So they would be attending to their crops and their fields. Whilst I, Abu Hurairah, would cling on to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, despite the hunger of his stomach. And he would remain hungry. He wouldn't work. He would cling on to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, Hovering around the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam, remaining outside his home in the hope of learning from him. And he would remain hungry, he would starve. On he says on some occasions he would fall down in between the member of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam and the home of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And some people believed on in those days that someone who fell down suddenly and who's suffering from a certain illness, that illness could, that their condition could be helped by placing their foot on the neck of the individual, possibly to calm them down. So people would place their feet on his neck, and he says, by Allah, I suffered from no illness, all it was was hunger. So Abu Hurairah radiyallahu anhu says that whilst my brothers from amongst the Muhajirun worked in the marketplace, and the, my brothers from amongst the Ansar, they were busy in, in their fields, I clung on to the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. As a result, I was present when they were absent, and I heard when they could not hear. This is why he learned so many ahadith. This is why he gained so much knowledge. It was through sacrifice, even if it meant hunger. And it wasn't just Abu Hurairah radiallahu anhu. There was a group of hundreds of companions radiallahu anhum who would devote themselves to learning and spending time with the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, away from their families, away from their other needs. And they would remain in and around the masjid all the time. Some of them were called the Ashabu Sufa, the companions of the veranda. They were so devoted to learning that this meant taking time away from their families, from their workplace, from their work, from their livelihood, and spending as much time with the Prophet ﷺ as possible. In fact, even if you imagine the scene in the masjid, the Prophet ﷺ did not hold formal classes 
as we would understand, where he would lecture and speak, and the Sahaba radiallahu anhum would be gathered around him, always as formal students. No. If you look at the collection of hadith, what the entire collection of hadith shows is that the companions kept the company of the Prophet ﷺ at all times, on all occasions. They tried to spend as much time with him as possible, even if it meant travelling out of the city. So yes, some of the ahadith you will find that he said this on the minbar. He said this in a gathering. But on many occasions, you will find that the companions relate, we were in this person's house, we were travelling on a journey, we were making our way to this location, we were in this area, out of Medina, we were in this area, out of Medina. So what this collection of hadith shows is that the, the, the Sahaba radiallahu anhum remained in the company of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam as much as possible. And that's how they learned. Abdullah ibn Abbas radiallahu anhumah he wanted to learn. He was very young. So he, since his auntie was the wife, his auntie Maymunah radiallahu anha was the wife of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, he would even seek permission to spend the night there. And he would hover in and around the homes of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam. The same with Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhumah, who was very young. He would try to spend as much time as possible in his sister's home, Hafsa radiallahu anha. The same with the other Sahaba radiallahu anhum. One of the most famous companions and the most learned companions is none other than Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhum. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu anhum. How did he gain such knowledge? Was it just automatically far from it? He was one of the earliest Muslims to embrace Islam. In fact, in one narration, he says that he was actually the sixth person to embrace Islam. And he would remain with the Prophet ﷺ as much as possible. Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiallahu says that when we came to Medina, and we, when we first arrived, and we saw Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu we would see him coming in and out to the house of the Messenger wasallam so frequently, we actually thought he was a family member. And Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiallahu an would carry the miswak of the Prophet wasallam, his slippers, his sandals, his water for wudu. They would carry, he would carry his pillow. He would carry the personal possessions of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, water for wudu, sandals, miswak, pillow, all in his service of the messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. In fact, he had special permission to come in and out to the house of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. This is why when he passed away, Abu Mas'ud radiallahu an, another companion, and Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiallahu an, they were both conversing, and they said. To, one of them said to the other, Abu Mus'ud said to one of them said to the other, "Have you seen Ibn Ummi Abd has passed away?" Meaning Abdullah ibn Mus'ud. Do you see that he has left behind anyone of his position and of his caliber? 
And the other said, no, of course not. Abu Musa al-Ashari radiyallahu anhu said, no, of course not. And the reason is because he would be present when we were absent. And he would be granted permission, i.e. in the home of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, when we would be prevented from entering. So the companions believed that there was no one more knowledgeable after Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu anhu had passed away, someone of his caliber and position. And why? Because they said quite clearly, the reason is, he was present when others were absent, and he was allowed in and granted special permission when we were prevented from doing so. What all of this shows is that these companions who sacrificed their time, their leisure, their own pursuits in order to cling on to the company of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, they gained the most. Just like Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu, one of the most famous narrators of hadith. Again, how did Sayyidina Anas ibn Malik radiyallahu anhu gain so much knowledge? So many hadith, quite simply. Because he says, from the time the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam arrived in Medina, I served the Messenger of Allah for ten whole years. And even those of the caliber of Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu. Look at what he had to say. Abu, Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiyallahu anhu went to visit Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu anhu. He knocked on the door. He heard no reply, so he left. Sayyidina Umar radiyallahu anhu came out and or he sent someone when he inquired who was knocking on the door. There was no one there who had been knocking on the door. He was told Abu Musa. So he said, call him, summon him. So he called him. So he said, why did you go back after knocking on the door and not hearing any reply? So he said, we have been commanded, i.e. by Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, to seek permission thrice. And then if we are declined permission, or if we see, if we do not get any permission, then to go away. So Sayyidina Umar radiallahu anhu said, bring me proof that the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam said this. Now Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiallahu anhu, he knew he had heard this hadith. But now he was fearful. He says, or oh, otherwise I will make an example of you. So he went. He went to a group of companions who were seated and he spoke to them. And he said, will any one of you attest to this? Will any one of you corroborate this report? So they, they all knew. And they deliberately chose Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiyallahu for two reasons. One, because he was the youngest. And for another reason, none of them wanted to face Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu So they sent Abu Sa'id al-Khudri. So Abu Musa al-Ash'ari radiyallahu took Abu Sa'id al-Khudri radiyallahu and went to the house of Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu Now before I continue, I'd just like to say that during the time of the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam, Sayyidina Umar radiyallahu he, he, he had been made the brother of an Ansari companion. And with this Ansari companion, he had come to an agreement that one day he would stay with the Prophet ﷺ for the whole day. And the Ansari companion 
would go and attend to his own chores and needs. And then the following day, the roles would be reversed. The Ansari companion would spend the day with the Prophet ﷺ and Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab would go and attend to his own needs. And they would alternate day by day. And each evening they would come together and the one who had spent the day with the Prophet ﷺ, he would share, relate and share everything with him. So in this way, they could both attend to their work, their chores and their needs and their own duties and not really miss out from learning from Rasulullah Now Imagine one day, every second day, the whole day would be devoted to learning and spending time in the company of the Messenger So Abu Musa al-Ash'ari and Abu Sa'id al-Khudri went see him. And Abu Musa al-Ash'ari told him that Abu Sa'id al-Khudri will corroborate what I related from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. So Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu an accepted. And he reassured him that he hadn't doubted him, but he did not want to set a precedent whereby anyone could ascribe anything to Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam without proof and without corroboration. Then, listen to his words. And this was Sayyidina Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu an. He said, you have gained knowledge, but I... I remain too preoccupied in my trade and in the dunya, and knowledge escaped me. Someone of the caliber of Umar ibn al-Khattab radiyallahu who would alternate and spend an entire day in the company of the Messenger sallallahu alayhi wa learning from him. And then the next day he would gain everything that he had missed from his Ansari companion and brother. Someone of that caliber he still says, in great regret and with remorse, that I was too preoccupied in the world, in the dunya, and I was distracted by trade and business. And you, and knowledge escapes me, whereas you, you gain knowledge. The Sahaba, radiyallahu anhum, for the sake of knowledge, they went through a lot. During the time of the Prophet, sallallahu alayhi wa and even after his time, Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhu, he was very young, extremely young. <coughs> he was in his early teens when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam passed away. So Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhu says, when the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam passed away, I wished to learn from the senior companions. So I would go to their homes. And at times I would arrive at their house in order to learn from them in the heat of the afternoon when they would be taking their siesta. So I wouldn't disturb them. But I would lie, I would, I would lie down on the ground Outside their home, waiting for them until they would awake and I could speak to them. 
whilst the dust of Medina would be swirling all around me. And then he would lie there in that state until the companions would come out. When they would come out, they would see him. And they would rush to him because they respected him for being a family member of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And they would say to him, Oh, cousin brother of the messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam, you should have notified us. We would have come to you. And he would say, no, I have come to you to learn. I wish to learn from you. And therefore it was my duty to come to you. Imagine someone of whom Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam had someone for whom he had prayed. He had placed his noble hand on his head and prayed to Allah, Allahumma alim ta'wil, O Allah, teach him the book, the meaning of the book. This is why Abdullah ibn Abbas radiyallahu anhuma is considered the exegete and the mufassir of the Qur'an from amongst the companions radiyallahu anhum. And even that dua that Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam gave to him for increased ilm, what was it for? It was because he chose to spend time with him. And when he spent the nights with him, he didn't just spend the night there. He went and prepared water for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam for wudu and for his needs. And he woke up with him at the time of the and he served him. Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam honored that service and repaid that service with a very beautiful dua. So all of the Sahaba radiallahu anhum who are regarded as prolific narrators, who are regarded as extremely knowledgeable, they didn't just gain ilm automatically. It was through great sacrifice and through a great effort and endeavor and even traveling, even visiting, even by humbling themselves. Every one of us should have a desire to learn. In fact, the desire to learn was present even in the noble messenger sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala tells him in the Holy Qur'an, I've mentioned this many times before that when Jibreel alayhi salam would come with revelation, Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam would with great haste repeat what Jibreel alayhi salam was reading after him. So Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala would told him that لا تحرك به لسانك لتعجل به إن علينا جمعه وقرآنه that do not move your tongue in order to hasten with the Qur'an, do not worry, O Messenger of Allah, the Qur'an won't escape you. إِنَّ عَلَيْنَا جِمْعَهُ وَقُرْآنَ It is our duty to collect and gather the Qur'an in your heart and to recite it to you. And in another verse, وَلَا تَعْجِلْ بِالْقُرْآنِ مِنْ قَبْلِ إِنْ يُقْضَى إِلَيْكَ وَحْيُهُ وَقُلْ رَبِّ زِدْنِي عِلْمًا That do not hasten with the Qur'an before its revelation is completed to you. Again, the meaning is that let Jibreel alayhi salam recite the verse completely or the set of verses. Once he has completed his recitation, then you begin your recitation. Otherwise, whilst he is reciting, do not read after him. But remain silent and listen attentively. And the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam wouldn't read along with Jibreel alayhi salam out of impatience. No. It was out of fear that he it would miss him. And it was because of his ardent desire to gain the knowledge and gain the words of Allah 
subhanahu wa ta'ala. That's why Allah honoring his zeal and acknowledging his passion for learning, Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala says, do not hasten with the Qur'an before its revelation is completed to you. And, وَقُلْ رَبِّ zidni ilma And pray and say, O oh my Lord, increase me in knowledge. And that was Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. He was told, pray to Allah, رَبِّ zidni ilma That, O oh my Lord, increase me in knowledge. So, the desire to learn, the desire to gain knowledge is a sunnah of the Anbiya alayhim wassalam. It's the sunnah of the noble Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Allah subhanahu wa ta'ala recognized and acknowledged his passion for knowledge, uh, for gaining knowledge, and Allah told him, pray and say, O oh my Lord, increase me in knowledge. Even after the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam passed away, the noble companions did not stop. And only when, when I related the hadith of Abu Darda radiyallahu an, I shared with you the two stories of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiyallahu an, and Jabir ibn Abdullah radiyallahu anhuma, which I won't repeat. But in, in the case of Jabir ibn Abdullah radiyallahu anhuma, he found, he learned that there was someone, one, one of the companions, who narrated a hadith from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam in Medina. Oh, sorry, in Dimashq. A hadith which he had not heard directly from the Prophet ﷺ. And he didn't know who the companion was. But he learned that the companion, that there is someone relating this hadith in Dimashq, in Sham. So Jabir ibn Abdullah anhuma, a young companion, who was again one of the most prolific narrators of hadith, he actually bought a camel. He had no reason to travel. He went out, bought a camel, and travelled all the way from Medina to Dimashq. Approximately just under a month's journey in those days, across the desert. And he went to, he made inquiries until eventually he came to the house of this companion and he heard the hadith from him. I've related this incident before, so I won't go into, go into it in detail. The other story of Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiyallahu an, the first host of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam when he arrived in Medina. Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiyallahu an already knew this hadith. He had already heard this hadith directly from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. But he now learns that there was no one else amongst the companions who had also heard this hadith alongside him and who could corroborate this hadith from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa for him with the exception of one companion, Uqbat ibn Amir radiyallahu anhu, who was in Egypt at the time. Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiyallahu anhu traveled all the way from Medina to Egypt. Not to learn a new hadith, but merely to ratify the hearing of one hadith from another companion who also heard the hadith from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, which he knew, which he himself had heard. But he just merely wanted to corroborate it. When he arrived and he met Rukbat ibn Amir radiyallahu anh, he said to him that I have learned that there is one hadith which only the two of us now relate directly from the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. 
So again, I've related that story. But the moral before when commenting on the hadith of Abu Darda radiallahu anhu, please refer to that. So the moral of the story in both on the moral of both of these two accounts is that these learned companions of Ayyub al-Ansari radiallahu and Jabir ibn Abdullah radiallahu anhuma, even after the Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa had passed away, they traveled. Abu Ayyub al-Ansari by camel all the way from Medina to Egypt for the sake of one hadith. Jabir ibn Abdullah radiallahu anhuma bought a camel, traveled all the way from Medina to Dimashq for the sake of one hadith. And there were other sahaba radiallahu anhum who did exactly the same. And this, this tradition continued. Today, Allahu Akbar, we have, we have books, we have the knowledge, or I should say we have the information. But how did we arrive at all this knowledge? What enables us to sit here today and be able to say, قَالَ اللَّهُ وَقَالَ الرَّسُولُ Allah said and the Prophet ﷺ said, the only thing is the sacrifice of the ulama of Islam for the sake of this knowledge. There are so many stories, so many accounts. When the ulama had this passion for learning, it drove them, it motivated them. And it's a rule, we will never gain anything, no pain, no gain. Allah says in the Qur'an, لَن تَنَالُوا الْبِرَّ حَتَّى تُنْفِقُوا مِمَّا تُحِبُّونَ You will never attain virtue until you spend of that which you love. True charity is when you can feel the pinch. It's when you can sense the loss. You don't regret it, but you can feel the loss. True charity is when you spend of that which you love. It means sacrifice. Without knowledge, sorry, one cannot gain knowledge without true sacrifice. And that means sacrificing our time, our wealth, our leisure, our pastimes. Our quality time that we want with others. Even with family. The things that we love. Until we do not learn to sacrifice what we love. We can never attain virtue and piety. Never attain righteousness. Knowledge isn't easy. People speak about Imam Bukhari, rahmatullahi about the ulama of Islam, not just Imam Bukhari, he, he was a scholar of the third century. Look at the companions of the first century, the ulama of the second century of Islam. I can name you scholar after scholar after scholar. Imam Sha'bi, rahmatullahi Imam Amir al-Sha'bi, he was a famous tabi'i who saw approximately 500 sahaba radiyallahu anhum and many of them he learned from them he was a famous teacher of imam abu hanifa rahmatullahi amir imam bukhari rahmatullahi relates a hadith in his sahih in which amir al-sha'bi relates from abu burda the son of abu musa al-ash'ari radiyallahu anhu 
who relates from his father Abu Musa al-Ash'ari After relating the hadith, one, one, just one single hadith, Amir al-Sha'bi, this great scholar, he said to the student, there, قَدْ أَعْطَيْنَاكَهَا بِغَيْرِ We've given it to you, there, take it. I've given it to you for nothing. Even though for less than this one hadith, people would travel from Mecca to Medina. Sorry, people would travel to Medina. This was a reference to the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam, where the companions would travel from other regions all the way to Medina to listen and to learn from Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. Sometimes one person would come from a distant area, ask one question and leave. Just like Uqbat ibn al-Harith radiyallahu he, he wanted to know one mas'ala. He traveled, all, this was after the conquest of Mecca. He lived in Mecca. He traveled from Mecca to Medina, came to the Prophet ﷺ, asked one question, got the answer, and traveled back to Mecca. And this is what Amir al-Sha'bi was referring to. And that, that's just the example of one companion, Uqbat ibn al-Harith. Otherwise, the hadith is replete with stories of the Bedouin and other companions coming to Rasulullah from around Medina and from even as far as Najd, from the eastern region of the Arabian Peninsula, merely to learn, merely to ask, and to gain and to leave. Amir al-Sha'bi, he related this one single hadith, and he said to those whom he related to, well, the one student said, Here you are, we have given you these hadith for nothing. Even though for less than this one hadith, people would travel all the way to Medina during the time of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wa sallam. Imam Awza'i rahmatullahi alayhi, famous scholar who was actually born in Beirut, So he, from one of the earliest scholars, someone accompanied him. And after they accompanied him, he stayed with him for four days. And in four days, he heard only 30 hadith. So he complained to Imam Awza'i. And he said, I've heard... Only 30 hadith from you in four days. He said, you complain about hearing only 30 hadith over four days. Abu Ayyub al-Ansari radiyallahu and traveled all the way from Medina to Egypt to merely hear one hadith which he already knew. And you find 30 too little? Too few? Imam Mujahid, rahmatullahi, a very famous scholar, a student of Abdullah ibn Abbas and Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma. He is recognized as Imam of Tafsir. Imam Mujahid, rahmatullahi, he once traveled with Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma from Medina to Mecca on a pilgrimage and on the way back. So he traveled in the company of Abdullah ibn Umar radiyallahu anhuma from Medina all the way to Mecca stayed with him in Mecca, returned to Medina. That was a whole journey, approximately a month. Normally it would take eight days from Medina to Mecca, because there were eight stages of traveling. So, sometime in Mecca, going to Mecca from Medina and on the return journey, approximately a month. 
And in the whole of one month, even though he stayed with Abdullah ibn Umar radiallahu anhumah, he only learnt and heard one single hadith from Abdullah ibn Umar. One single hadith. But he remained with him, clung to him, served him, looked after him, waited upon him, travelled that distance, and this was through the desert. And at the end of it, he only heard one single hadith. They would measure verses of the Qur'an, a hadith, in gold. A word in gold. That's how much it meant to them. They cared not for wealth. When it came to giving and spending one's wealth, Imam Bukhari, rahmatullahi alayhi, he, he was a trader. He would trade in cloth. And yet, despite being a businessman, despite being a trader in cloth, at times, he spent all his money in the search for hadith. Travelling here, there, everywhere. Until he himself says that at times, I had no wealth to such an extent that for three days, I would, su- I would survive by eating gr- dry grass for three days. That was Bukhari. Dry grass for three days. Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in, rahmatullahi alayhi, a very famous scholar of hadith. <coughs> Yahya ibn Ma'in was a friend and a companion and a colleague of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, rahmatullahi alayhi. And Yahya ibn Ma'in, his father was wealthy. When he died, he bequeathed him one million and fifty thousand dirhams, over a million dirhams. And now, because of the price of silver, the last time I calculated, one dirham was worth about one pound ninety pence. So almost two pounds. So in today's currency, this would be approximately two million pounds sterling. So he inherited two million pounds sterling approximately from his father. Yahya ibn Ma'in, rahmatullahi says, I spent all of it in my search for hadith to such an extent that I had no money left to even buy sandals. Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal himself who is regarded as one of the imams of the Muslims, whose collection of hadith, the Musnad of Ahmed bin Hanbal, Ahmed bin Hanbal contains 27,000 hadith. It's the largest collection of Musnad hadith that we have at present. Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, rahmatullahi although he became an imam later, without doubt, but during his days of study, when he was in Makkah al-Mukarramah, and he would, he would visit the scholars to hear hadith. And he was living in Mecca. He spent some time in Mecca. He would learn. He would go to learn hadith as well. But in order to provide his own upkeep. And for his livelihood. He would actually carry luggage. And be a, what we call a coolie. He would just be a luggage carrier. And a porter in the streets of Mecca. So during the day. He used to carry people's luggage. And goods on his back. 
And he would work in that manner and earn his money. And that's how he would survive and provide his own upkeep. But all of his purpose for traveling to Mecca was not work. His purpose for traveling to Mecca was to listen to hadith. That's how they would spend their wealth. That's how they would devote their time. And they were willing to tolerate anything. Hunger. Long journeys. Even a kick. I've related the story before about Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal and Yahya ibn Ma'in. Rahmatullahi alayhima. The Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in and Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal and another third scholar who wasn't as famous or well-known as the two of them. They travelled south to Yemen to hear hadith from Imam Abdul Razak al-San'ani. Anyway, on the way back, they came from Mecca on the way back. They were travelling back to Baghdad. So, Yahya ibn Ma'in, after all, they were human. He had a habit of testing scholars of hadith. So he said to Ahmed ibn Hanbal, that come, let us pass by Abu Nu'im al-Fadr ibn Dukain. And they had both studied under him before and heard hadith from him. So the two, the three of them had traveled all the way from Baghdad, south to Yemen, back to Mecca, and from Mecca they were now returning. So he, before returning to Baghdad, they said, let us visit Abu Nu'im al-Fadl ibn Dukayn, who was one of Imam Bukhari, rahmatullahi's teachers too, great scholar. And they had both heard hadith from him themselves. But Yahya ibn Ma'in wanted to test this famous muhaddith, Abu Nu'im al-Fadl ibn Dukayn. And the reason he wanted to test him, he had a habit of doing so. He would test scholars of hadith because they always wanted to make sure that they never, that their memory never suffered a lapse and that they were able to relate hadith correctly. So Imam Ahmad ibn he said to Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, let's go and test him. So Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal said, no, don't. You know that Abu Nu'im does not require testing. He won't fail. So he said, no, no, let's go and test him. So Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal had no choice but to go along with Abu uh, Yahya ibn Ma'in. When they arrived there, Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in, he wrote 30 hadith, which they had all heard from Imam Abu Nu'im al-Fadl ibn Dukayn. And after every 10 hadith, he inserted a hadith which wasn't from the narration of Imam Abu Nu'im al-Fadl. But he interpolated it. So a total of 30 hadith, but the 11th, or possibly the 10th, the 20th, and the 30th, the both narrations, they were three out of those 30 hadith were ones that did not belong to him. They, he hadn't narrated them. So when they both arrived, they all sat down respectfully in front of Imam Abu, Abu Nu'im and 
Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in, he deliberately gave the sheets and the paper of hadith to the third one. Not Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal, nor did he read it out himself. He gave it to the third scholar. So they began reading the hadith. And when they would read the hadith, the teacher would confirm or he would just listen. When he arrived at that first hadith, he said, This This isn't from my hadith, strike it off. Then carried on when he got to the second interpolated hadith and he heard it, he immediately recognized. And he said, this is not from my hadith, strike it out. When he got to the third hadith, finally at the end, again he said, this is not from my hadith, strike it out. Then Imam Abu Nu'im al-Fadl ibn Duqayn, he grabbed Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal's hand. And he said, listen. He said to all three of them, Ahmad, He's far too pious to do something like this. And he said, as for this one, he's not able to do something like this. Even though he was the one reading out. And he said, you, he said, this is all you're doing. And then Imam Abu Nu'im stood up and he actually kicked him. He kicked Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in. And in, according to one narration, he kicked him so hard, he struck him on his chest, and he rolled over. And then he got up angrily and went inside. So Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal said to Yahya ibn Ma'in, I told you, don't test him. So Imam Yahya ibn Ma'in said, Wallahi, by Allah, this one kick was more sweet, beloved, and pleasant to me than my entire journey. So they would be willing to tolerate anything, hunger, long arduous journeys, even a kick from which they would roll over. But the ulama had this habit of testing each other. There's that famous story about Imam Bukhari, when he arrived in Baghdad. We don't have time now, I'll explain that on another occasion. But the point is, it's about sacrifice. And not just humorous sacrifices like this, We've all heard of Imam Abu Yusuf rahmatullahi alayhi. Subhanallah, speaking about sacrificing time, leisure, pastime, quality time, one's wealth. Imam Abu Yusuf rahmatullahi alayhi was a student of Imam Abu Hanifa. His own son passed away. And when his son passed away, on that day, The time had arrived when he would normally go and sit in the gathering of Imam Abu Hanifa, rahimahullah. So even on the day his son passed away, Imam Abu Yusuf, rahmatullah, said to his family, you continue with the preparations for the burial and the funeral, I will go, for if I remain with you, I will miss my gathering with Imam Abu Hanifa. And so Imam Abu Yusuf, even on the day of his son's death, at the time of bereavement in his own family, he went and he did not miss his gathering with Imam Abu Hanifa. Imam Abdul Azim al-Mundiri, a scholar of the late centuries, who's a famous author of the collection of hadith, al-Targhib wa al-Targhib. He used to live in a madrasa. And he spent his whole time there. And his son was with him. And his son passed away. 
Imam Abdul Azim al-Munziri rahmatullahi alayhi accompanied his son's janazah all the way till the gates of the madrasa. And then he told the people, you continue with my son's janazah. And he bid farewell to his son's funeral and his janazah and body from the gates of the madrasa, but he did not go beyond it. Now, with the story of Imam Abu Yusuf, with the story of Imam Abdul Azim al-Mundiri, rahmatullahi alayhima, we may find this strange. Of course. Some may question that, how could that be? But the truth is, this was their overriding, overwhelming love for Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. They were in a different world altogether. Their love for the knowledge of Allah and his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wasallam. this is what nourished them. This is what gave them energy. This is what energized them. This is what rejuvenated them. This is what gave them life. Like Imam Malik, rahmatullahi alayhi, he was teaching hadith, he was bitten by a scorpion 17 times. But he did not stop teaching hadith. Even though his, the color of his face would change. He would go red and pale, red and pale. The blood would drain, rise from his face. And he would be wincing. He would be grimacing in pain. And then the students couldn't understand what was going on. But out of respect, they remained silent. When he concluded the teaching of hadith, he called them and he said, check my back. They removed the cloak and they found scorpion clasped to his back that had bitten him 17 times. They said, why, why didn't you tell us? Why didn't you stop? He said, out of respect for the hadith of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. There's a similar story about Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi alayhi but not teaching hadith, reciting Qur'an in salah. He was bitten also. He did exactly the same. He continued with his salah. And only after salah, he removed his cloak and he called his students, they checked. And again, there were scorpion bites. Why? Why didn't he stop? He said, I was in the middle of a surah. I did not want to end my salah until I had completed my surah. And it was obviously a very long surah. This is what gave them energy. Like the stu- Subhanallah. This is what they lived for. And this was their overriding passion and love. I've related the story of Imam Muhammad ibn Yahya al-Dhuhli rahmatullahi alayhi, a teacher of both Imam Muslim and Imam Bukhari rahmatullahi alayhi, a great Imam. He was in his room poring over his books of hadith with in candlelight. In a closed room. You can imagine his son came in and he saw his father in this closed room surrounded by books, pouring over the books of hadith in candlelight. So he said to his father, he took pity on his father and he said, Oh father, why don't you relieve yourself for a while? So his father replied to him, Imam Muhammad ibn Yahya al-Dhuhli, rahmatullahi alayhi, son, how can you tell me to relieve myself for a while when I find myself that I am with Allah's messenger and his companions? That's exactly how they felt. They were transported. That was their world. 
And I've explained this before, just like today we find ourselves buried in novels, in books. People pick up a book, it may be fantastical, a book of fancy, sorcery, magic, another world. Goblins and hermits and all sorts. Wizards, warlocks, dragons. People people can pick up a book on fancy. And they become so immersed in it that they become oblivious to all around them. Totally oblivious. People can watch a film. And they can become so engrossed, so immersed, that again they are oblivious to their surroundings. Whatever is happening around them, they might have a peripheral sense of it, but their focus, their attention, is undividedly on their object of enjoyment. And I explained a few weeks ago that this is actually a form of hypnosis in itself. They would do the same, but their subject matter was the words of Allah and the words of his Rasul sallallahu alayhi wa sallam, ilm of deen. This was their passion. Imam Abu Yusuf rahmatullahi, he was on his deathbed, and he was on his deathbed and he was discussing the Masail of Hajj. So someone asked him that, oh Imam, even, on you, even now in your final few moments, and he says, it may be the end of my time, but if I can spend even a bit of time either benefiting myself by learning or benefiting someone else by teaching them why not. So ilm, even on their deathbed. The position of ilm and the position of ulama is great, without doubt. The position of knowledge and the virtue of the people of knowledge is great, without doubt. But it must be true knowledge, and that true beneficial knowledge cannot be gained without true sacrifice. And sacrifice doesn't just mean travelling for the sake of knowledge, but it means so much more. Sacrificing what we love, our leisure, our time, our wealth even, spending. In a famous hadith, Rasulullah wasallam says... That when a man, إِذَا مَاتَ الْإِنسَانِ إِنْقَطَعَ عَنْهُ عَمَلُهُ إِلَّا مِنْ ثَلَاثَةَ إِلَّا مِنْ صَدَقَ صحيح مسلم إِلَّا مِنْ إِلَّا مِنْ ثَلَاثَةَ إِلَّا مِنْ صَدَقَ إِذَا مَاتَ الْإِنسَانِ إِنْقَطَعَ عَنْهُ عَمَلُهُ إِلَّا مِنْ ثَلَاثَةَ إِلَّا مِنْ صَدَقَةٍ جَارِيَةٍ أو عِلْمٍ يُنْتَفَعُ بِهِ أو وَلَدٍ صَارِحٍ يَدْعُو لَهُ Prophet sallallahu alayhi wa sallam said when a man dies, all of his deeds are cut off from him except three things. Except sadaqah jariyah, perpetual charity, or knowledge which is benefited from by others, or a pious son who continues to pray for him. What will really continue, if we wish to spend on anything, then let's spend on these three things. Sadaqah jariyah, perpetual charity, knowledge that others will benefit from, and children who will continue to pray for us. And the reason I mention this hadith is because all three categories, ilm covers all three categories. If one spends on knowledge, whether for oneself or for someone else, then whoever learns or benefits from that knowledge, they will gain a share of it. 
if someone actually teaches and bequeaths knowledge, then that's the second category. They will continue to enjoy the reward. And a pious son who continues to pray for him. How can we ensure the good upbringing and the good education of our children? The only way we can do that is to invest in resources of ilm. So this hadith is beautiful, but if you look at it, ilm covers all three categories. And this is what the ulama did of the past. So when we speak about sacrificing for knowledge, we're not just talking about time. We're not just talking about traveling. We're not just talking about wealth. We're talking about sacrificing what we love. We love our leisure. We love our free time. We love our comfort. But until we do not sacrifice of these things, we will never gain true knowledge. I'll end with just what that one famous story about learning of, again, one of the scholars of the earlier generations, Imam Baqi ibn Makhlid al-Andlusi, rahmatullahi alayhi. And it involves Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. It's a very famous story. Imam Baqi ibn Makhlid was a young scholar from Qurtubah, Cordoba, Andalus, during the era of Muslim rule in Spain. In the uh, many, many centuries ago. He was a scholar of the third century. So he actually died in 276 Hijri. So he was a contemporary of, at the time of Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, he was a young man, but he was a contemporary of most of the authors of Hadith. So 276, that means he died uh, just one year after Imam Abu Dawood, the author of the Sunan. So Imam, and he died exactly uh, 20 years after Imam Bukhari, so Imam Baqi ibn Makhlid al-Andalusi, when he was in Qurtuba, Cordoba, he had heard, and that was under Umayyad rule, he had heard of the scholars of Hadith in Iraq and in Hijaz, in the Arabian Peninsula. And he was very eager to meet with Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. So he, tra- he traveled with the intention of learning Hadith. And he traveled all the way from Qurtuba in Muslim Spain at the time. And he undertook this journey and he vowed to Allah that he would travel only on foot. He would never ride. He travelled on foot all the way from Qurtuba, down south, across the Strait of Gibraltar, all across northern Africa, the Arab lands through Egypt, through the Sinai Peninsula, by foot, subhanAllah, across the Jordanian desert and the Iraqi desert until he eventually arrived in Baghdad. But before he arrived in Baghdad, he heard that Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, the one person he really wanted to hear and learn from, he had been placed under house arrest and banned from teaching. So it's as though his world fell apart and he was unsure of what to do, but then he decided to press on and continue. So he arrived, took up, booked some residence somewhere and then he went to the Jami' Masjid of Baghdad. And there there was a very large gathering. 
And there was a scholar teaching. And that scholar was none other than Yahya ibn Ma'in, the one I spoke of earlier, the companion of Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal. Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal used to say of Yahya ibn Ma'in, any hadith that Yahya ibn Ma'in doesn't know is not a hadith. And Yahya ibn Ma'in says, I wrote a million hadith with my own hands. One million hadith. And I've mentioned this before. Although in total the actual texts of hadith are only a couple of thousand. So how do, do, suddenly do we get this huge number? It's because we, you have the text of hadith and then you have the sanad, the chain of narration. Normally in the terminology of the scholars of hadith, the same text but with a different chain of narration is regarded as another hadith. So this is why the we only have a couple of thousand main bodies of the text of hadith, with their attached chains, they become numerous. So he says, I wrote one million hadith in my own hands. So Yahya ibn Ma'in was delivering a lecture. Oh, by the way, Yahya ibn Ma'in, rahmatullahi alayhi, was a follower of the Hanafi fiqh. Despite such knowledge of the hadith, he was actually a follower of Hanafi fiqh. So Yahya ibn Ma'in was sitting there teaching in the Jami of Baghdad. And Baqi ibn Makhlad al-Andalusi went and sat. And he realized that the scholar is giving his verdict about narrators of hadith and about other scholars. Who's reliable, who isn't, etc. So he approached him and asked him that I want to, I've come from far, Andalus, and I'd like to ask you about someone. What do you say of Ahmed ibn Hanbal? So Yahya ibn Ma'in stared at him for a while and said to him, you ask me about the imam of the Muslims? Baqiyu al-Makhlid, when he left that gathering, he made inquiries about Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal's residence. And then he went to his house, knocked on the door. Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, rahmatullahi alayhi, opened the door. And when he saw him, Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal, out of fear, because he was under house arrest, and he was banned from teaching, Banned from people going to him, learning from him. So he pulled Baqi ibn Makhlid inside to the corridor, side corridor. And he said, what are you doing here? Don't you know that you shouldn't be coming to visit me? So he said, oh imam, I am such and such. I have traveled from very far because I wish to learn from you. So he said, where have you traveled from? So he said, very far from the furthest land. So he said, from Al-Maghrib. Al-Maghrib used to be, and still is, the whole of northern Africa. It's regarded as Al-Maghrib, Al-Maghrib al-Arabi. So he said, from the Maghrib? So he said, no, from from even further, Andalus. So he says, indeed, you have come from very far. You are exactly the kind of person I would love to teach. But as you know, I have been banned from teaching. So Imam Baqib al-Makhlid said to him, Oh Imam, if you will grant me permission... 
I will find a way of coming to you whenever I can, every day if possible, without exposing myself or you to risk. If I come in that manner, would you be willing to teach me just one or two hadith? So Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal said, fine. So the next day, Baqi ibn Makhlad, he dressed up as a beggar, took a staff, wrapped a dirty turban around his head, got a can, and started walking along the street shouting, Shay'an lillah, Shay'an lillah, meaning give something for the sake of Allah. He wouldn't take anything. And then he made his way acting disguised as a beggar to the house of Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal. And then knocking on the door, he'd shout, Shay'an lillah. And then Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal would open the door, pull him to one side. And there, when, when he would be safely inside the corridor of the house, he used to take out a piece of paper and a pen and an ink pot from his sleeve. And he'd stand there and he'd say, Imam, relate. And Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal would then relate the hadith with his chain of narration to him. Sometimes one hadith, sometimes two hadith, sometimes most three. And then he'd safely tuck everything away and go back out acting like a beggar. And he did this every day until he says, I had collected 300 hadith from Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal approximately, or just over 300 hadith. Then the emperor, the ruler who had banned Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal from teaching, from the one of the Abbasid rulers, he died. And when he was succeeded by another of the family, but who was a bit more sympathetic, he withdrew that ban and he restored Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal to his position and he was granted permission to teach once again. So once again he would teach in the masjid openly. So when he started teaching again openly, thousands and thousands of people gathered, without doubt, in the Jami' of Baghdad. And Baqi ibn Makhlid says, I was seated a bit far, so Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal saw me and he called me and he made space for me. And then he made me come and sit in front of him. And then he told the whole congregation, this is what you call a talibul ilm, a student of knowledge. This is what you call a student of knowledge. And then he would pay special attention to me. One day, I fell ill. And I was living in a hostel. I fell ill. So, Imam Ahmed bin Hanbal, he never saw me. So he inqu- I fell ill, I didn't go for one or two, a few days. So Imam Ahmad bin Hanbal inquired about me and then he was told that I was ill. So he came with his whole entourage of students and attendants to the hostel. So when he came to the hostel, there was suddenly a huge uproar. The Imam of the Muslims have come, the Imam of the Muslims has come. And then they rushed to me and said, the Imam of the Muslims has come looking for you. So Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal came and he paid him a visit, iyadah, visiting the sick, subhanAllah. And then all he said to him was, son, there is no health in sickness and there is no sickness in health. What Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal was trying to say is, this is the decree of Allah. When Allah has decreed that you will be ill, there can be no health. And when Allah has decreed that you will be healthy, there can be no illness. It wasn't a hadith, it was just Imam Ahmad ibn Hanbal's own words of wisdom. He said, son, do not worry. 
there can be no health and sickness, there can be no sickness and health. So Baqi ibn Makhlid and Lucy says, I was ill, but as soon as Imam Ahmed ibn Hanbal started speaking, I heard the scratching of pens on paper. Meaning the students would suddenly take notes and write down whatever their teacher was saying. Such diligence. Notes even standing up when thronged in a small room in a hostel visiting a sick student. And then Baqi ibn Makhlid and Lucy says that in this, when he left, everyone started honoring me that who are you that even the Imam of the Muslims, Ahmed ibn Hanbal, comes to visit you. He said from that moment onwards, they had probably ignored him before that, but from that moment onwards, uh, the people of the hostel, they brought me food and drink and clothing and they started looking after me even better than my family could have looked after me. And all of that was through the barakah of the attention of the Imam of the Muslims, Ahmed ibn Hanbal. And why was it through, why, why did he pay any attention? Because in him he recognized the characteristics of a true student of knowledge. And without doubt, he had walked all the way from Qurtubah to Baghdad. And Baqi ibn Makhlid then, after learning from him eventually and visiting other areas, went back. And then he made a second journey, again to learn hadith, and he went back. And he then died in 276 Hijri in Qurtubah. That's just one example amongst many. These were the ulama, and although I've spoken about their learning of hadith, I don't wish to restrict this to hadith. Ultimately, hadith is part of ilm. So the same is applicable to learning the Qur'an, learning the hadith. Look at Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu anhu. Abdullah ibn Mas'ud radiyallahu anhu says in a hadith related by Imam Bukhari and Imam Muslim and others, he says there is not a single surah of the Qur'an. Except that I know when it was revealed. There is not a single ayah of the Qur'an a verse. Except that I know where it was revealed and for what it was revealed. And if I knew, Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, in another narration he says, I have learned 70 surahs directly from the noble tongue of Rasulullah sallallahu alayhi wasallam. And then he says... If I knew anyone who was more knowledgeable of the book of Allah than I am, and camels and mounts could reach him, then I would ride these mounts and camels to travel to him in order to learn from him. And Masruq, one of his students, says, I would go and sit in the gatherings of the companions. And they all had heard of this claim and challenge by Abdullah ibn Mas'ud, and no one would refute him. Because they knew indeed he was of the most knowledgeable of the book of Allah. But, despite being such a great scholar, what does he say? If I knew that there was anyone who had more knowledge of me than, the, of the, than me of the Holy Qur'an, and camels and mounts could reach him, I would ride to him to learn from him. And even Abu Darda radiallahu an, I spoke about him. Abu Darda radiallahu an, who was such a great scholar of the Qur'an and of knowledge, he says, and he was based in Dimashq, that if I was made to forget, if I, had, if I forget one verse of the Qur'an, and I would have to travel all the way to Burkul Ghimad, which is the southernmost tip of Yemen, in order to be reminded of that verse, I would travel and it would be a journey worthwhile. So these were the Sahaba radiallahu whether it's Hadith, whether it's the Qur'an, whether it's Fiqh, when it comes to fiqh, Allah says in the Qur'an, 
وما كان المؤمنون لينفروا كافه فلولا نفر من كل فرقه منهم طائفه ليتفقهوا في الدين ولينذروا قومهم اذا رجعوا اليهم لعلهم يحذرون الله says that why isn't it that a group of the believers does not rise and go and travel so that they may learn they may learn and gain an understanding of religion so that it may warn those who return to them when they do return that means there should always be a group of believers dedicated to learning and if that means with sacrifice sharing that knowledge and fulfilling this collective responsibility so knowledge is without doubt of a great virtue and the people of knowledge are people of great virtue the students of knowledge are ones of great virtue but that ilm can never be gained without true sacrifice sacrificing our time our leisure our pastimes our wealth even in the manner of the noble companions and these great classical scholars of islam it is it is through their sacrifices that knowledge has reached us we are able to share this knowledge with each other today and that we are able to practice our religion that which has come to us by sacrifice cannot be sustained except with sacrifice and cannot be conveyed to the next generation except through sacrifice i pray that allah subhanahu wa ta'ala enable us to understand allah make us amongst those who gain the knowledge of allah's words and the words of his noble messenger sallallahu alayhi wasallam we pray just as the prophet sallallahu alayhi wasallam was taught to pray that oh, our lord increases in knowledge and just as he used to say Oh Allah we ask you for beneficial knowledge and we seek refuge in you and we seek your protection from knowledge which does not benefit us wa sallallahu wa sallam ala abdihi wa rasulihi nabiyyina muhammad wa ala alihi wa sahbihi ajma'in subhanakallahumma wa bihamdik nashhadu an la ilaha illa ant nastaghfiruka wa natubu this lecture was delivered by sheikh abu yusuf riyadul haq and has been brought to you by alkotha productions for additional lectures and products please visit www.akstore.com. We can also be contacted by phone on 0044-121-771-3777 or by email via sales at akstore.com. Produced under license by Alcotha Productions, all rights reserved for Alcotha Productions and the author. Any unauthorized distribution, broadcasting or public performance of this recording is will constitute a violation of copyright.